Everybody, if you weren't in here for prayer and meditation, I just ask us, all of us collectively, just take a deep breath. Let's do it one more time. Take a deep breath. The point in doing that and our intentionality is to catch up with our bodies and to fully get here. Today we're continuing our series, uh, Jesus, Grand Exception or Gracious Rule. And if you missed last week, how many of you were here last week? Yes, many of you were here. Stan gave a powerful and challenging introductory message to this series. And if for any reason you weren't here, I challenge you to go back and listen to it this week. But as we break this Lenten series down, what we are doing the next couple of weeks is we are focusing on the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and then the resurrection of Jesus, which will lead us up to our Easter celebration. So this week, today, I am covering the life of Jesus in his entirety. And no small feat, right? There's a lot to cover with that. And so I wanted to go back to start us off with where I started with Jesus. And that takes me back as a child growing up in a Southern Baptist church, and I was most drawn to the music about Jesus. And I remember um, one song in particular that I, I loved and memorized quickly, and I wonder if you know it. It says, Jesus, name above all names. You know it? Beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. I remember being in my room listening to a salty tape. Did any of you grow up with salty? Yes? Yes, so we had this salty tape and I would listen to that song and it moved me to tears because I was immediately drawn to the gentleness of this man and to the kindness of this person, Jesus. I also remember being in Sunday school and seeing pictures on those felt boards. Did any of you grow up using those felt boards in Sunday school? Yes, but I remember being drawn to the image of Jesus where Jesus was holding that lamb or he would have that lamb around his shoulders or of the image of Jesus kneeling down and um, bringing the children into his lap. That is what I was attracted to, the strong and kind and gentle Jesus. So as I began studying intentionally for this message and looking at Jesus's life in its entirety, uh, it began to be very overwhelming right away. There are so many facets to Jesus's life. There are so many different ideas of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Um, and the academic study, when I opened myself to the academic study and on the impact of Jesus and on the history of Jesus, you begin to realize that the scholars, the brilliant minds, all of those people who are choosing to intentionally try to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. There are people who have idolized him. There are people who critique him. There are people who revere him. Um, and these people span all over the world, spanning uh, the past 2,000 years, and they all agree and disagree on a lot. They agree and disagree on a lot, but you're telling me to dismiss the children. Hey, kids, if you're in here, get out. Um, <laughs> no, kids, you're dismissed to your classes and youth head on up to the building. Oh, thank you for that, Randy. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we're back to, they agree and disagree on a lot, but none, none can deny the impact that Jesus has had on our world. And so who was this Jesus? The name Jesus, it has two different referents. On one hand, Jesus refers to the human figure of the past, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jew of the first century. And then on the other hand, in Christian theology and devotion and worship, the name of Jesus also refers to the figure of the present, the risen living Christ who is one with God. So the first is commonly spoken of as Jesus of Nazareth or the historical Jesus or the pre-Easter. Jesus. This is the version of Jesus leading up unto his death, okay? And then the other one is spoken of as the Christ of faith, the canonical Jesus, the post-Easter Jesus, meaning what happened to Jesus after his death. So for today, we're going to focus on the pre-Easter Jesus, the historical Jesus. So we're looking at the life of Jesus. I've realized when we emphasize his divinity at the expense of his humanity, okay, when we emphasize his divinity at the expense of his humanity, we lose track of the utterly remarkable human being that he was and who we are also called and created and crafted to be as well. So I want to admit quickly to pretend that I feel overly confident this morning to give a complete overview of his life is just silly, especially within the 30 minutes or so that we have. So that's not my approach, okay? I play the role today not just as pastor and communicator, but of truly a curator of this information that I have gathered in hopes that I will be able to teach you or at least expose you to some things that I have been exposed to as well. And so we're going to look at a lot that will hopefully encourage you, though, to look and search for yourself as well. But for now, I ask you, let's put aside all we know or all we think we know about Jesus and see if right now in this moment we can view him in a fresh and moving light today. First of all, Jesus. Jesus was a very common name, although his was not a common life. The historical Jesus had both great vision and lived out great deeds to back up his vision. Jesus was a Mediterranean Jewish peasant, and his Nazareth origins, the city and town of Nazareth, they are undoubted. And Nazareth was a small, dirty, insignificant, and town of no notable distinction. Jesus was a carpenter. He was of the lower class status, and there was a great divide in the Greco-Roman world between those who had to work with their hands and those who did not. And this is important for us to realize because it sets the stage for the culture and environment in which Jesus lived. So the upper class during these times, the upper class were the rulers and the governors and then the priests, very important. Then underneath that were the retainers, which were the military generals or the um, expert bureaucrats. And then right underneath that were the merchants. That's the upper class. Then in the lower class, it starts off with the peasants. And then under that are the artisans, those who work with their hands. And then below that were the degraded or the expendables, which made up the beggars or the slaves or the hustlers. So Jesus belonged to that artisan class. He was right below the lowest in the lower class. So when we move forward, then understanding that between the upper and lower class, there is a huge distinction between them. And we need to understand at least a little bit about the social structure and ancient domina domination systems that were in place during his time to be able to understand the impact of what Jesus said and did. Walter Brueggemann um, says that within those st structures and systems, there are three main characteristics that I want to point out. He says, first, a politics of oppression. 
the societies, they were hierarchical and patriarchal. Ordinary people had no voice in the structuring of the society. That included women, sick, poor, and children. They had no voice. Second off, a characteristic was an economics of exploitation. So the lower class, the peasants, they were the working class. And over two-thirds of the wealth that they produced went to the upper class then. So the major class distinction, again, was those that worked with their hands, the lower class, and those that did not. But those that did not gained two-thirds of the wealth from those that did. And then third, the last distinction was there was a religion of legitimation. They believed then that the social order, the hierarchy in place, revealed the very will of God. And that in turn gave them such then a defense and excuses for the way that they treated the lower class. So specifically then, if you're looking at the Jewish worldview, Jews divided the world into members of their small nation, and the members were us, the Jews, or the Gentiles who were them. This is the world in which Jesus enters, okay? Every Jewish person lived within that division, that Jews were God's chosen one, and the Gentiles were God's unchosen ones. So Jews did not eat with Gentiles. Jews did not intermarry with Gentiles. Jews did not associate or interact with Gentiles. The humanity of the Jews was marked by what John Shelby Spong would call tribal boundaries then. There were great divisions between us and them. And so let's fast forward for just a minute to the Apostle Paul. I'm gonna jump ahead for a minute, but to the Galatians, Paul writes, inside the Christ experience people had with Jesus that all of their tribal boundaries melted away. He said, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. He goes on to the Romans a few years later, and Paul still had this sense of the Jesus experience when he wrote that salvation has come from God in the person of Jesus and is available to the Jew first, but then also to the Greek or to the Gentile. A few verses later, he says, God shows no partiality. For he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. My word, that was good news, y'all. Those were astonishing claims right there in the midst of their society. So the power and legacy Jesus left had expanded Paul, Paul, even Paul's own tribal boundaries, and through him had enabled the followers of Jesus to embrace then their entire world. It was no longer us versus them. See, something about this Jesus, Jesus had been sufficiently unique and life-changing to enable them to set aside a million-year-old human survival characteristics of this tribal identity and to feel Jesus' call to a new level of humanity. See, in Jesus, I believe it's not a portrait of an invading deity who is coming to rescue the fallen. In Jesus, this is rather the story of one who empowers others to be so deeply and fully human that they can actually escape the security lines built to, uh, to serve their primitive survival needs. They are moving out of their boundaries. And so we see in Jesus that there is a huge difference between merely surviving in your world, which is what they were used to, and thriving in your world and in your life. Jesus said that I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That was the call of Jesus. So John Shelby Spong says that in Jesus, what we got was nothing less than a breakthrough of human consciousness. 
A whole transforming sense of new humanity was the very essence of what people found in this life. God was seen in the life of Jesus as a power one could give to others, even different others, not hiding them behind their tribal hatreds or their normal hierarchies. So Jesus was a social prophet. He engaged in a critique of the domination systems of his day. Now he was seemingly grounded in the spirit and that is what led Jesus to engage his world then fully. He was involved with the social and the political issues of his day, especially his challenge to the purity system of the first century Jewish world. Marcus Borg says, for Jesus, compassion was the central quality of a life centered in God. Compassion was a central quality of a life centered in God. And it is argued that the word compassion represents the summation of Jesus' teaching about both God and ethics. Let's look at Luke 6.36. This is in the message translation. Well, the beginning of that verse, hold on. The beginning of that verse says, live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives towards us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind, so you be kind. Another translation of just that last verse in the Common English Bible says, be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. The CJB translates it as, show compassion just as your Father shows compassion. So that word compassion right there, it's, there's different uh, translations for that Greek word, which is originally oktermon. And some translate that to be merciful. The King James Version uses that as merciful. And, and many different uh, translations use that as where that's probably the most common translation of the word is merciful. But in English, merciful has quite different connotations than compassion does. And if you go back to Strong's um, concordance and look, the very first definition of this Greek word is in fact compassion. Passion. See, because in the English language, mercy and merciful most commonly imply a superior relationship to a subordinate and also a situation of wrongdoing. But compassion suggests something else. Compassion means to feel with, to act in a life-giving and nourishing way, which is exactly what Jesus did. So Marcus Borg says, the crystallization of Jesus' message speaks of a way of life grounded then in the imitation of God, that we would recognize the image of God and the ethos of God. We understand what God is like and then how we are then to live as well. So Jesus spoke and lived this way as be compassionate, as God is compassionate. But the primary paradigm in the Jewish world, shaping the Jewish world, was not this. It was Leviticus 19.2, which says, be holy as I am holy. So listen, the dominant social vision then was centered in holiness. And the alternative social vision that Jesus is offering was centered in compassion, those are two different things. Holiness meant to, uh, was understand to mean, understood to mean separation then from everything that was unclean. To be holy was to be pure. And the ethos of purity then produced a politics of purity. And then it produced a social system that was structured with the purity system. And so within this purity system then, it was organized around the contrast of pure and impure, clean and unclean. And purity applied to people and to people groups in the first century Jewish world. Purity also depended maybe on birth, on how and to whom you were born. Purity other times depended upon your behavior 
behavior. Um, the righteous then were those that could follow this purity system, and the sinners were those who did not. And sinners was not a generic term that was used at the time. So physical wholeness then was associated with purity and physical um, lack of wholeness or lack of physical health meant that you were then impure. Another example was that men in their very natural state were thought to be more pure than women. <laughs> the natural bodily processes of a woman, which includes childbirth and menstruation, they were considered sources of impurity. And that lines up then that women were viewed as second class just generally because of who they were. Also by definition, all Gentiles, all Gentiles were impure and unclean. So to sum this up, the effect of this purity system was to create yet again a world with sharp social boundaries between pure and impure, righteous and sinner, whole and not whole, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. But in the message and in the activity of Jesus, we see an alternative social vision. Borg says in his book, Jesus, A New Vision, Jesus has created a community shaped not by the ethos and politics of purity, but by the ethos and politics of compassion. So when Jesus says, be compassionate as God is compassionate, instead of reiterating, be holy as God is holy, he is making a radical substitution there. Jesus deliberately replaced the core value of purity with compassion. So when Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, blessed are the pure in heart or the pure in spirit, what he's saying is true purity is not a matter of external boundaries or observance. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. So then when the stories of Jesus' healing come, they are shattering the purity boundaries of their social world. And one main place I want to focus on today is Jesus as healer. There are more healing stories told of Jesus than about anyone else in the Jewish tradition. And I confess to you this morning, when I think of Jesus as healer, I do not get that same warm feeling that I do when I think of Jesus as shepherd or that man that draws children unto himself. And that's because my own story is freighted with losing dear people in my life. My great, uh, my uncle died of brain cancer when I was very young after much prayer and longing for God to intervene and him doing all the medical things that he could do. My 32-year-old brother-in-law, Jody, died of cancer um, nine years ago now and left my sister at 32, a widow, and their three-year-old son, fatherless. And so as I researched for this message and I realized that the scholars, both conservative and liberal, they all agree that one of the main aspects and profound impacts on our world came specifically through the healings of Jesus, I had to lean in. I had to lean in at that point and I had to take my own pains and my own hurts, my own doubts and questions and set them aside to look with new eyes at this man and his ministry. And what becomes very obvious is that Jesus, Jesus was all about restoring wholeness and dignity and healing the souls of people. So whether you and I, whether we believe in the supernatural, that is God intervening beyond what is natural and above scientific law, or if maybe we believe in paranormal, that is denoting events that are beyond the scope of our understanding, but maybe more than likely they could be explained, we just don't know yet, or maybe you believe in the metaphysical this morning, I want to admit that it's okay to disagree about these things. And it's also okay to just say, I don't know, 
because I'm vulnerably telling you today that I don't know where I am with it, but that I am open. I am open, and I would ask that you would be the same. Marcus Borg says in his book, I very deliberately refer to Jesus' healing as paranormal, meaning unusual alongside the normal or beyond the ordinary. One explanation of healing, he says, understands that God through Jesus intervened in the natural process from out there. He says, my problem with this view is not that I do not accept, or excuse me, is that I do not accept a supernatural interventionist model of God and God's relation to the world. He says this model creates more problems than it solves. The miracles of Jesus, were they interventions? No. Were they marvels? Yes. Inexplicable and remarkable things do happen involving processes that we do not understand. So that being said, if at the most, if at the most Jesus's miracles were supernatural and God intervening in the universe, then that has impacts on our world and the way in which we view and act in the world. But set that aside if only for a moment, because if at the least, if at the very least, what in Jesus's miracles, what if they were the healing of the social structures of his day and of the illnesses of those who were physically diseased? See, there's a difference between disease and illness, and I encourage you to look this up because I was unaware of the differences, but a disease is best referred to as the abnormal condition in your body, the thing that needs to be cured. But illness, illness best refers to the feelings that come with having that disease. And so illness speaks about then what you think of yourself while you have this disease, or more importantly, maybe what society then thinks of you. That is the illness. So what if at the very least Jesus was healing the very way the sick perceived their own condition or the way society viewed them as well? That was at least one part of the miracles that changed their world. So now being open to both options, let's look at a few circumstances. First, I want to look at Luke 8, uh, 43 through 48. This is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. It's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but we're going to look at Luke this morning. Now, there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him. She's talking about Jesus. She came up behind him and touched the very fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And then Jesus asked, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and press in on you, meaning there's a lot of people here touching you, Jesus. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I noticed that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. And she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. So let's review for a minute. A woman during her menstrual cycle was seen as unclean, so she was ostracized as a potential danger to the social well-being during the time. So for those few days each month, she was covered with a sense of culturally imposed shame. Culturally imposed shame, and man, religion does this to people on too many levels. So then when we read that this woman's flow is constant, it's not periodic, it's constant, it meant that she was perpetually unclean. It says she sought medical help to no avail. She saw herself then as cursed. And with that, her humanity was diminished. Her belovedness was less than. 
And so then with what must have been an enormous strength of her character, she chooses to break out of that religiously imposed prison. She would seek out Jesus. She would physically touch him, although that was not allowed. Understand that. That was not allowed by her. She must have had, though, some sense that if she would receive, if he would receive her touch, he would do so without condemnation, which would be something different. So because of that, thus she and he would break those barriers that repressed and compromised her humanity. See, this was a very purposeful touch. So when Jesus looks at her and says, daughter, a term of human relationship with such great significance, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. It was her faith that believed she could be more than she had previously known. So it's in that verse where Jesus says, someone touched me for I felt a power has gone out from me. It was her sense of faith in the divine power that then flows out of one human being to another and can heal. And then Jesus sends her away with a new sense of peace and of wholeness that she has never felt before. Let's look at another scripture, Mark 1, 40 through 45. A leper came to him, begging him and kneeling, he said to him, if you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once. Saying to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to claim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer stay in the town openly um, and ended up going out from there. So once again, Jesus touched the person that should not be touched. Imagine what the very touch of a human being is to the one who is deemed untouchable. I remember I had the privilege of going to Africa um, back right out of college, and we went into these colonies um, with men and women and children that had this thing called the Baruli ulcer, which is basically like a leprosy. And they were cast out of their towns and their villages, and they had to have their very own place. And when we went into that place and touched their hands or their face and said things like, Jesus loves you, or God's loved you, or we love you, I remember the tears that fell because they were seen as untouchable, and my touch meant so much to them. The same thing happens in prison when we go in and we're not only singing over these men, but we take 40 or 50 people who just simply want to shake hands with these men. And they're like, wait a second, we are the untouchables and you are choosing to touch me. And in that very thing, healing begins. John Shelby Spong says, the fear of that which we do not know always erects barriers in life. And so we've created some barriers and they had many barriers in their life. And Jesus is saying in these miracles, tear those barriers down. This is not the way of love and of wholeness. Again, I think at the very least, Jesus healed the poor man's illness by refusing to accept the disease's ritual uncleanliness and his social ostracization. That was the miracle that was to change the world right there. And then I love it. Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. He's saying, go be a witness to them, to those who are saying you are impure, to those who say you are less than. Jesus says, go as a testimony. In other words, show them your worth as someone who's born in the very image of your God. Be a confrontational witness. And you know I love that. <laughs> be a confrontational witness. 
See, Jesus is healing not only the individual, but the community by refusing to accept traditional and official sanctions against the diseased persons. One more scripture. Look at Luke 17. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through a region between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, 10 lepers approached him, keeping their distance. They called out saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. It's as if he was saying again, don't let them tell you that you are unclean and unworthy. Go show yourselves to the priest. And as they obeyed that, as they went, as they walked out in the sense of their being beloved, they were made clean. There was one of them when he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice and he prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him and he was a Samaritan. He should have been unclean by his very nature. Jesus asked, we're not 10 made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus said, rise up and go. Your faith has made you well. Words that seem to imply, go be who you are because you are deserving of dignity and of worth. We all are. This kingdom of God then, this very thing Jesus is teaching and doing, it gave them back control over their own bodies and over their own hopes and their own destinies. So some would offer then, could miracles be an internal process of such deep alliance with our own existence as the beloved that there then produced in our body, our mind and our spirit, a wholeness and a health? Let me say it again. Could miracles be an internal process of such deep alliance with our own existence as beloved that there was produced in our body, mind, and spirit a wholeness and a health? It was philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich who offers that a new being comes to those who know themselves to be in touch then with the ground of all being. So it's as if Jesus is giving us an example then of what a whole and abundant life could look like with all of its not just personal but social implications as well. John Shelby Spong says, signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God are attached to the life of Jesus who was said to embody that kingdom by opening the eyes of those who are blind so that they may see their deepest identity. It is in our humanity that we can claim to reveal the presence of the holy God. N.T. Wright says Jesus created a community not by keeping people out, which is what they did in that day. Jesus created community not by keeping people out, but by bringing people in. His healing was a sign that the kingdom of God was happening in and through his own work. And then later Jesus entrusts others to do this as well. So, so many students of the way of Jesus recognize that both the healings of Jesus and then also the shared meals were the two central features of Jesus's public activity and also became central to the mission in which Jesus sent his followers on. Remember again, there were rules in this society. So there were also rules in their social structure for eating. The table represented a miniature model for the rules of society and who you should then be associated with depending on your class. So table fellowship had a significant meaning in Jesus's world. Maybe too difficult for us to imagine, but sharing a meal with someone represented mutual acceptance. For instance, Pharisees would not eat with someone then who was impure. The modern idea for us of you are what you eat was different for them. It may be better saying you were only as good or as pure as the people that you eat with. That's what they believed. 
But Jesus had an open table. And Jesus often told parables about eating and about banquets. And then he constantly lived those parables out. Quickly, let's look at the end of Luke 14. Let's jump ahead to verse 12 if you can. Verse 12, he said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. It says, but when you give a banquet, which is a celebration, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." See, again, Jesus used both vision and message and then also action, at times a dramatic public action to be able to show what he believed and to truly live it out. So he ate meals with the untouchables, which not only generated criticism, but also symbolized his alternative vision of human community. John Dominic Crossan would say, Jesus' parables advocate for eating together without using the table as a miniature map of social, excuse me, society's vertical discriminations and separations. This is and was a radical threat to life as they knew it then. Because it wasn't just about the table, it was about the social systems of the day, the unhealth that had taken over their culture. They had overlooked far too many and as a result, had left people with no sense of dignity, nor worth. So Jesus' open table then, it became the symbol of this idea of radical egalitarianism, that all people are equal and deserve equal rights and opportunities. So Jesus said and lived in a way that said there should be no discrimination. There should be no hierarchy here. And so because of who he dined with, who he tabled with, he was known then as a drunkard. He was known as a glutton. He was known as someone who dare ate with tax collectors and with sinners. But Jesus' practice and theory of eating, of open commensality, which is Crossan's term, was a fundamental challenge to their honor and shame society, just as his practice of healing was an equally fundamental challenge to their purity codes. So the open table then fellowship of Jesus was thus perceived as a challenge to their purity system as well. So Jesus is saying, whereas purity divides and excludes, compassion and the kingdom of God unites and includes. Okay, purity divides and excludes and compassion unites and includes. And the kingdom of God was a discipleship of equals. Remember, they were tribal they were patriarchal, they were familial, and they were political. So in scripture, anytime you see Jesus, it seemingly looks like he's attacking families. What he's actually doing is attacking power. He's speaking about father over son or father over mother. He speaks to power and the power that's in those relationships. He's not simply speaking to the bonds of family blood and love. Jesus is reminding us that the human family should be an open one that it is equally accessible to all under God. And he intuited that through his own grounding in the spirit, that the more we seek into this very tribal attitude, these separations, the us versus them survival mentality, the more then we are consumed with hatred, the more then that we understand that we are actually being less human than we should be. We are not supposed to survive in this world, he said, but to thrive in life, to truly learn to love God, ourselves and others. Another point worth noting was that Jesus was always interested in the individual. 
He was always interested in the person. He asked people, what is your name? Go back and read it for yourself. Read some of the gospels this week. Jesus always seemed to be setting humanity ahead of the religious law, then subverting that law, making it a higher goal. See, the Sabbath laws that were put in place, they were designed as an enhancement of the human life. That was their purpose. But Jesus is saying, if religious rules do not enhance life, then they must be set aside in the name of humanity. That's still seen in conflict today. We see that all over the place. But Jesus is saying, when the two are in conflict, law and humanity, Jesus says, humanity wins. Humanity should trump the law. Another point in the life of Jesus is that he often spoke in parables. We're familiar with that. But parables, I want us to realize, were conversation starters. Parables were a way of entrusting something to the audience. They were inviting the audience to then experience their own thoughts, to think for themselves, which when we realize that his audience was this peasant lower class, that was unheard of. But his parables provoked that audience. It provoked participation and reaction rather than passive reception and memorization. Borg says that the parables were devices of empowerment to the people. So when we look at his life, and I could go on and on with the insight that we could draw with this deep well that's full of everlasting water and of nourishment, but we see that the historical Jesus, the pre-Easter Jesus was a game changer He called others then to join him in this as well, that this kingdom movement was not a matter of Jesus's power, but of his empowerment of the people and of humanity. In the call of his disciples, you realize he tells them, we are to be there for one another, to have solidarity with and dependency on one another. He's saying we are together in this. We need to rely on each other for just enough. And then he often tells them, go get what you need and then move on to the next city. He's looking at them and he's saying, you are now healed healers. You have been welcomed. Now be welcomers and take the kingdom of God to all. He's saying, for I am not the kingdom of God's patron and you are not its brokers. It was and it will be available to all people. So Jesus was then rebuilding his peasant community on radically different principles from those of which they already knew. He said the kingdom of God was based on egalitarian sharing of spiritual and material power at the most basic level. Jesus began to speak of God then, not as imminent apocalypse, but of present healing here and now. So then you'll see if you go back and read in the Great Commission, he was saying, go now, go even to the Gentiles To those whom you fear, go beyond the boundaries of your own fears. Go to those who who are different. You have defined, those you have defined as unclean, go to them and proclaim the limitless love of our God. And I still hear that call today. To go beyond my own barriers or the barriers that our society has set in place. To go to those who are different and to tell them that they are loved and that they are deserving of worth because of who they are. What we've seen today is that Jesus sought to build a society from the bottom up based on principles of equality with free healing brought directly to those that needed it most. Jesus's master plan for himself then and his followers was the combination of open hands and open hearts, 
of free healing and common eating, a religious and economic egalitarianism that negated alike and at once the hierarchical and the patriarchal, uh, patriarchal normalcies of Jesus' religion of the Roman power of the day. He was speaking truth to power that was right in front of them. At least... At the very least, that he himself might be interpreted as simply the broker of a new God, what he did is he kept moving on constantly from place to place, from city to city, and we'll see he moved on beyond as well. He was neither broker nor mediator, but somewhat paradoxically, Jesus was the announcer and the broadcaster of this very good news, that neither a broker or a mediator should exist between humanity and divinity or between humanity and itself. And that is powerful. He used miracle and parable, healing and eating. They were calculated to force those individuals into an unmediated physical and spiritual contact with God and into an uh, unmediated and physical and spiritual contact with one another, no matter what level of class they were. Marcus Borg would say he announced, in other words, the unmediated kingdom of our God. So Jesus ate with everyone. He healed, at least, at least he healed the illness that shamed someone and the disease that cast them out of social circles. He spoke authoritatively with intentional words that provided dignity and honor and forgiveness to all, and he did so much more. It's as if Jesus said with his life, the only way into the life of God is to walk into the meaning of our humanity, our complete, whole humanity. So I believe in Jesus, and I believe Jesus, by the way he lived his life, gave us a glimpse of how we are called to live as well, a full and abundant life for our sake and for the world. So yes, there is a sweetness to his name, but there is also a power to his name and to his life. Can you say amen? Amen.